Greetings, everyone. My name is BJ Anverga. Welcome to the Eurospeak podcast, where we discuss topics with a European origin and explore how they impact our daily lives. We're still working on our third season, but this is a special episode that we are sharing because of what has happened in Ukraine. Our team felt that we would be remiss if we did not have content related to the crisis. Just as a background, on Thursday, 24th February 2022, the world watched as Russian military forces entered Ukrainian territory in what Anton Goroshenko, an advisor to Ukraine's interior minister, described as an invasion. Diplomats at the United Nations pleaded for peace, but their words were not enough to impede developments on the ground. The crisis has contributed to rising petroleum prices and a new humanitarian issue that needs to be addressed. Military conflicts have sides, but their humanitarian crises do not. As such, if you are able, please consider providing assistance to UN agencies or international NGOs that are active in Ukraine right now. On this episode, I will be sharing excerpts from a forum on the Ukraine invasion that I had the opportunity to moderate. The panel consisted of Jarek Tionlok and Jamina Hugo, both faculty members of the European Studies program at the Ateneo de Manila University in the Philippines. They discussed the crisis in general, the impact of sanctions directed against Russia, and how developments in Ukraine have implications on East Asia. With that said, let's begin with the excerpts. Thank you all for joining us. And now we, we go into the more interactive part of this. And we've actually prepared a number of talking points uh, in order to analyze this, this situation from different perspectives. And I guess the first question that I'd like to throw out to, to my colleagues um, would be, how do you think we should understand this conflict? Okay, well, um... I'm, I see some of my students here and they're probably going to remember that we just had a class on this. And what we were talking about was how a lot of this is about uh, spheres of influence and how Putin especially would like to restore what he thinks uh, his country's sphere of influence should be. It was so great to have that map in the beginning, just to look at the geopolitical like implications of this conflict. But historically, Ukraine and the neighboring countries have been a buffer between Russia and what we think of as Western Europe. And I think both sides saw it that way. And then with NATO expanding, like I see some questions in the chat already about NATO. Um, then this buffer that like Putin kind of expected ought to be there always was gone. What some like Russian officials have presented is that they feel kind of betrayed by NATO because there was a verbal agreement a long time ago, like several US presidents ago that NATO would not expand. This was never put on paper. So then the NATO leaders were able to take back that agreement and expand anyway. NATO has doubled in size since the Cold War ended. So from a, a very like geopolitical, like international relations realist perspective, this could be a, like very easily read as a threat to Russia, just the fact of like having NATO getting closer to them. But then they go on and use that as a point to like justify, you know, trampling on another country's sovereignty. I think this is why there's so much international response. Part of that is like feeling, you know, sympathy and compassion for the Ukrainians. But some of that is also like a lot of people just recognizing it as a threat to the concept of sovereignty, which sometimes not every newspaper is able to 
convey to readers, I guess. Um, Jarek, is uh, do you think of this differently? Uh, do you do you see some convergences between what what we've said? Okay, uh, I see some convergences, but I do have um, quite a hardline reference that is totally different. So I'll answer this first by describing the geopolitical realities, and then I will explain why I don't agree with them. First, so it, my, my thesis for now is that uh, while dominant explanations seem to be geopolitical in motivations, a lot of the actual motivations and anxieties are actually quite ideological. So geopolitically, a lot of people are focused on Ukraine as a strategic on the map, uh, how it, it has access to uh, warm water ports in the Black Sea, how it is, uh, I think what Jamina talked about earlier, it's a, it is a buffer. It, uh, it, grants, it grants Russia much access to Central Asia and uh, closer to the southern tips of Europe. Um, and then at the same time, when you talk about NATO expansion and enlargement, actually, I think the language of NATO has always been enlargement, not expansion. Russia has always interpreted that as an act of aggression, and they have framed that as an exist as as an existential threat. However, a lot if you ask me, a lot of the anxieties seem to be unfounded and merely rhetorical, simply because first, unlike most of continental Europe, Russia is a nuclear power. Russia is a nuclear power. In fact, a lot of um, nuclear de-escalation between NATO and um, Russia has not focused on NATO. It has always been bilateral between the US and the Russian Federation, wherein NATO is not seen as a viable as a viable threat in terms of uh, whatever nuclear arms race that exists now. Uh, in fact, when Russia agreed to the uh, to what it calls reduce the number of nuclear weapons it has, it wasn't entered with NATO. It was entered with the US. So, uh, at the next of uh, Despite NATO being, uh, it's sort of a hardline stance, but despite NATO being accused of uh, what you call aggressive, if you actually check the facts, NATO has not engaged in open conflict with Russia. Uh, be it in Georgia, which happened in the Euro- European corridor, be it in Syria, even though Russian and uh, Russian forces were supporting Syrian forces, who were then attacking Western forces. Uh, be it in Crimea. Crimea itself was a precursor to this war. Uh, NATO never intervened with Crimea. Uh, even though these were open hostilities that Europe, uh, that NATO itself could look at and rightfully look at as aggression. So if you ask me, a lot of the geopolitical uh, statements are quite rhetorical to conceal the ideological anxieties that exist. Uh, I, why do I say this? A lot of the recent rhetoric has been about the denazification, the unification of the Russian-speaking people. It's quite similar to the ideological formations of World War II. I won't create a very tight comparison to that, but if you read a lot of the commentary online, for credible commentary online, there's a lot of um, comparisons to the invasion of Czechoslovakia in the 1930s with the creation of the Sudetenland, the, the unification of German-speaking people. So a lot of the reasons are, if you ask me, ideological. And then I echo what Crit said earlier. What, I, what Crit said in the talking point that BJ echoed earlier. Um, I'm speaking as if he's here. Um, it's, also an, it's also a 
Russia has, has this imagination of a different normative set of um, preferences, anti-democratic, uh, more conservative preferences. Um, what do we mean by more conservative preferences in global politics? It is about the supremacy of sovereignty, um, collectivists over in, co- collective rights, collective interests over individual freedoms, which are sort, of, which are sometimes diametrically opposed to Western norms. Uh, European norms, Western, particularly European Union norms, have a hierarchy. Individual freedoms could not be stepped on in the name of collective interests, uh, which Russia opposes. And at the same time, uh, if you ask me, especially pertinent to Ukraine, Ukraine has always occupied this unique, if Chris is entering psycho- political psychology, so I will enter it as well. Um, there has always been this uh, general frustration on the part of Russia when it comes to Ukraine. Because Ukraine has always been the avenue through which the West and Russia uh, engage in a tug of war of sorts. Uh, they have uh, Russia has always tried to pull Russia, uh, Ukraine to the east. Uh, the West has tried to pull Ukraine to the west. Um, and unfortunately for Russia, for most of the significant uh, social movements of the past 20 years, it has always, Ukraine has always moved to the west uh, with the Orange Revolution with Euromaidan, especially Euromaidan. And then now with um, Ukraine applying formally for EU membership. They have never talked about applying formally for EU membership. They have openly discussed the possibility of applying for NATO, but they've never actually applied for NATO. And NATO, of course, is seen as something Western. So I think it was uh, Kim Rances who asked earlier, what are the fundamental what are the fundamental reasons for creating NATO and why is it so significant now? Um, Two things, uh, if the literature is to be believed and if policy is to be believed, uh, it is it was first designed to contain the USSR from a security perspective, but more importantly, it was designed to contain the uh, communist ideology of Russia. So uh, this aggression is not just a matter of security and realist perspectives, as what Jamina said earlier. A lot of it, if you ask me, is ideological. It is... Uh, Russia trying to reject and compete with compete and reject um, Western liberal norms as taking a foothold as global, and it is the West trying to resist an anti-Western ideology from taking a foothold in contemporary global politics. Right, um, and so I, I'm actually not sure how to segue into this part. I, I, I suppose we could think about this again as in terms of the the ideological and material coming. Uh, together, but what what should we expect out of these economic sanctions? What what have we already seen? Um, will they work? Will they not work? I saw Jarek shaking his head a lot. Okay, um, I'll take a hardline stance. Uh, first, I do agree that sanctions will only work for a certain amount of time. Um, why? Because sanctions have always been there. They have been ongoing since 2014. That is why the West has actually not just the West most of the world, Japan has chimed in on sanctions, um, has been to expand the sanctions. Uh, What is the logic for that? Um, Just before the war, just before the invasion, Russia posted how it has more dollar reserves than debt, which is significant. However, most of the dollar reserves are abroad. They are not in Russian banks. So that is first significant. Um, most of Russia's dollar reserves are abroad. And I don't know where they are. Some say they're in Switzerland. That is why I pointed out earlier 
how significant the alignment of Switzerland is to the sanctions. If sanctions work, they have to be total because of how interconnected um, economic systems are nowadays. And next, um, I disagree totally with Belarus's role in coming up as, as mediator because Belarus is a partner of Russia. In fact, I th- it, it was in the news just this morning. Belarus has agreed to send forces to Ukraine. It has agreed to serve as a channel through which Russian forces could cross into Ukraine. So if I were Ukraine, I will enter whatever negotiations hosted by Belarus with some skepticism. Are there sanctions on Belarus as well? There are. They're starting. And then more importantly, it was this morning, um, someone, I think it was from The Spectator, Someone, President Lukashenko, uh, Lukashenko, Lukashenko, it's, it's very gendered. Lukashenko, um, <laughs> I believe, yeah. Lukashenko was uh, explaining certain things to his uh, officials, and then they showed a map um, pointing to the possibility of Moldova being the next target. And if you check the map I posted earlier, Moldova is in the region of Ukraine. And Moldova also has a Russian-speaking minority that is geographically isolated within a specific region. So, if I were, so is Ukraine offering diplomas at a diplomatic channel credible? If you ask me, no. I mean, I think that's textbook diplomacy 101. Any mediator should not be aligned in any of the belligerents. So, do sanctions work? It depends. It has to be total. But I do agree. But, but I think, no, what do the sanctions hope to do? It's not just to cut the funding for the war machinery. It is also to uh, create this sense of um, discontent from a lot of the Russian public. Because a lot of the information coming out of Russia is that a lot of Russian, uh, most of the Russian public population are unaware of what's going on. Are unaware of what's going on because yeah. of the absolute stronghold that the regime has on information. Right. So we'll see how it goes. Great. Thanks. Uh, Jamina? Okay. So, okay. How, wait, how do you like segue from that? Um, I also, I, I wouldn't trust the talks in Belarus either. And one of the reasons I brought up also uh, uh, what people mean by sanctions working is that like they're there doesn't seem to be a clear benchmark for knowing like when like we've quote unquote won with the sanctions, which is a bit scary considering they're so important in I guess like the international arsenal against uh, Putin's aggression at this point. Like you have to have like a plan and a goal if that's like kind of your main path going forward. And also um, historically sanctions don't work that quickly. So considering we're talking about cutting off supplies of like oil and natural gas, which are very critical resources, this is going to be about attrition, outlasting the effect of the sanctions on everybody's economy. And people have to be on board with it for long enough to, I guess, like work enough. And um, I think there's not been that much communication that I saw over here in Europe. Uh, between the governments and people about what that victory is going to look like and what they should expect. And my concern is that 
um, once people feel the pinch of like the cutting off of these like of these energy supplies, they might start to wonder like, is this really going anywhere? This is not what we expected. We're not seeing the results that we thought we would see. And I'm also wondering like exactly how that's going to change the, the discussion around um, energy security. Because in a lot of countries in Western Europe, people want to like really get off of nuclear energy. Like they want to shut down all the power plants. There's like lots of big and little demonstrations around Germany all the time. Like maybe because like we have a lot of like hippies of different generations running around here. But anyway, um, there's an expectation that going green means like leaving nuclear energy really quickly. But given this, does that mean that people are going to be okay with staying nuclear longer? If right. it means that they can stick with the sanctions longer, but there needs to be this discussion because there's a possibility that European citizens might get sick of it like too soon, I guess. Mm-hmm. So this is why the unity is so important. Right, right. Um, connecting to that, I, I wanted to ask um, your thoughts on on if we should be thinking about this this conflict in terms of uh, an illiberal world order or if it's about aggressive aggressive states. So Derek, maybe you have thoughts on this since, since you really first um, proposed this? Uh, I think, well, I go back to what I said earlier. A lot of what I see based on, of course, my research preferences, research interests, is that um, a lot of what Russia is doing is also to, to assert its uh, worldview. It's, uh, it just happens to be uh, authoritarian in preference, anti-democratic. It, it is. It thus comes as no surprise that um, China and Russia have had this de facto, not alliance, but general cooperation towards the destabilization of democratic systems. Uh, this happens in, uh, in, in as far as Russia is concerned. It, it this uh, Russia sustains a lot of the authoritarians and autocrats of Central Asia. Um, uh, Russian interference in uh, democratic backsliding is quite universally known. It happened in the U.S. Um, with Donald Trump and how uh, Russia was mostly interested in targeting misinformation in key uh, battleground states, particularly in 2016, Michigan and Pennsylvania, which uh, both states brought Donald Trump the victory. And then we also have Poland and Hungary. A lot of what's going on in Poland is uh, not just we we call it democratic backsliding, but it is a part of that movement is this uh, refusal to participate in rule of law mechanisms that inform the democratic tenets that that are the institutional tenets of liberal democratic norms. Uh, The absence of rule of law is an illiberal concept. So uh, this is why Ukraine is so important. I, for me, no, I think this is what why Ukraine is so frustrating for Russia. Because for the past 20 years, they've been trying to bring Ukraine towards a more authoritarian rule. But European, uh, Ukrainian voters always move towards the Western ideas. Um, so I think no, that, that contributes a lot to the frustration of Ukraine. Why Ukraine? Why was Ukraine the first country to be uh, invaded in this in this manner, no, because with Georgia, because with Georgia they stopped. The moment they got the Russian-speaking minority areas, they stopped. 
But with Ukraine, why target the capital? This is the first time since World War II that in continental Europe, you have a war of aggression targeting an entire country on its own. So there's a certain level of, I think, no, I think that if you situate it from the past, when if you situate the event as part of a constant cycle of normative debates, normative contestations within that region, I think it, I think there's much explanatory potential in that. So I, that's why I keep focusing on the 2014 uh, revolu- the Euromaidan revolution because it was such a tipping point. The moment uh, uh, Ukraine stated that they really want to institutionalize European Union cooperation through an association agreement, which for a lot of European Union scholars is fundamentally the first step towards membership, that was a... Uh, A tipping point because literally a few weeks later Russia invaded Crimea. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Russia invaded uh, Crimea. Yeah. So um, it's a lot of East versus West. It just happens. I think someone here in the comment section earlier talked about how Russia is in this proxy situation. Uh, proxy wars are the in the language of realist IR, but um, not not so much in normative IR. But I think the dynamics are quite similar. It's just that uh, with as far as Ukraine goes, it's. Yeah, it's a lot of normative uh, debates, normative tension. Right. I I think. Um. Sorry. Sorry, Janina. I I, I just remembered um, something that was sort of related to what Jarek was saying as well, which is um, uh, speaking of Russia's frustration about trying to get Ukraine to to be more authoritarian. One of the ironies of the the Crimea invasion is that the 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 Ukrainian parliament went from you know sort of a 50-50 split of pro-Russian and pro-Western into mostly pro-Western, right? So the pro-Russian uh, representatives in the parliament were all like not voted back in. So um, if you're, I mean, if you are a Russian strategist, that that clearly didn't work out. Um, sorry, Janina. Yeah, so I, I wanted to return to like the discussion point earlier that ideolog- ideology is geopolitical. Like especially like in this case, um, not just from I guess like Putin's side or like the Russian side about how like they kind of like, I think they kind of see themselves as the standard bearer of like illiberalism or authoritarianism at this point. But also like if you look at the language of the EU itself, the way they articulate European values is individual rights or human rights, democracy, openness, tolerance, and all of that. And if you tag those values as European, and those values seem to be spreading kind of like closer and closer to the borders of Russia, then that can kind of, I guess, like fuse with a geopolitical threat in a sense. So in a way, like you can't, it's hard to separate like NATO expansion from the expansion of democracy and democratic ideals. And just as um, it was pointed out uh, when, um, Uh, the Ukrainian parliament started to like swing really hard, like more into like being pro-Europe and pro-liberal democracy. That was also a geopolitical move on their part. It's not a hundred percent that you know the Ukrainian voters like suddenly all fell in love with democracy. It's also that authoritarianism is now tagged as Russian. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So really, yeah. how can you separate them anymore? <laughs> I think. Uh, I think we could proceed to this uh, next step. I think it's talk, it talks really more about the prospects of what's going on or what are the f- possible long-term effects of this. I think the next point of debate 
at least which isn't something new for us global south scholars is that should um invasion be a legitimate avenue through which regime change occurs because i think i think austin yao asked is perhaps kremlin is aiming for a regime change in kiev regime change is nothing new in international politics but the thing is uh this isn't the first time that uh, an invasion was uh, used by a superpower as a mechanism for regime change in a different country uh so what are your opinions on that because everyone was talking about how um the united states i think it was uh what what's what's his name the former presidential candidate was Repu- who's republican uh, uh, sorry uh romney mccain Mitt oh. romney expressed his dis- his um condemnation on russia by saying that this is the first time in 80 years that a sovereign country has invaded another sovereign country to initiate regime change. Of course, though, everyone from the global south could look at that as mm-hmm, not true. But uh, I think it's an open debate now. Um, should Because I think no, uh, if this works, Russia will legitimize that as a mechanism for regime change. Uh, right. What are your opinions on that? Is this, you know, uh, related to what Jarek was saying about the legitimization of invasion uh, as a way to to bring about regime change? Should we be watching this as a test case for what Taiwan uh, may may the what may happen to Taiwan in the future? Yeah. So, a- any thoughts on that, Janina? Absolutely, yes. This is a test case for further like clashes or aggressions. I think this is part of why. The international community is so, I guess, like up in diplomatic arms about this because they understand the implications for sovereignty. Um, in terms of whether this is like really new and if it's very different from what's happened in the global south, I think some people would say that it's new, in the sense that it's harder to justify it as being in any way defensive. I mean, like considering like. The, when the U.S. went into Af- Afghanistan, they had more of a reason than Russia has going into Ukraine. It's not 100% the same. But at the same time, like this has been pointed out in more recent coverage of the Ukraine crisis, we can't discount the racism in the coverage and the degree of international attention that has been accorded to Ukraine. Um, I think Trevor Noah actually had like this clip of a journalist who was at the border saying, I can't believe this is happening in Europe. You know, this is not some, you know, third world, like collapsing state. This is happening right here. And from a global South perspective, it's pretty offensive. Like it, the implication is that this kind of chaos and violence is somehow okay and to be expected in the global South, but because it's Europe or close to Europe, suddenly it's special and it's, something that needs to be paid attention to. So it's a mixture of the newer implications for sovereignty that are maybe like a much more aggressive form of what's happened before. And so everyone's scared. And also the classic thing of, oh, it's happening to Westerners or to quote unquote white people. So now we all have to pay attention. Yeah, I think that's why I pointed it out earlier in the situation, how ASEAN has been so quiet about it. And it's been it's been vexing me for the past three days, four days. Why is ASEAN so quiet about this? And uh, considering how, what, three or four ASEAN countries are now in possibly the most hotly contested territorial dispute in contemporary politics. And you have uh, possibly China looking at uh, looking at avenues to legitimate its own claims. Yeah, but in terms of global agenda setting, you can see the major difference in the way uh, Ukraine or like or like that whole region, the Black Sea is treated versus Southeast Asia. 
if I try to open a discussion about it, people will be like, okay, we, we never read about it, we can't relate, it's too far away, what's that got to do with us? But then if you look at the Ukraine discussion, like you don't even have to explain to a lot of people from geographically quite far away countries why it's somehow important. But somehow it's hard to make a case for why Taiwan is important outside Asia. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm being mindful of time. I noticed that we have about uh, about seven minutes remaining. And so sort of as a way of um, closing the, the discussion, maybe I'm, I'm just going to try to bring together a number of the questions that, that have been left unanswered. And I will sort of distill it into this one question, which is um, how how does the, the invasion of the Ukraine, how does it affect us as a country as of this moment? Or how should we, how does it affect the world? Uh, it's up to you how you want to answer that. But what do you think might be impacts to watch out for as we move forward? J Jamina, would you like to go first? Okay. Uh, I guess the impacts on us are very like urgent and yet indirect. So it's very difficult to like, you know, put together like a strong Filipino engagement on this issue, even though it's really needed. Because like people are, are still thinking of it in terms of how many nationals do we have in Ukraine, even though the impact is could also be on like the global economy and energy supplies. It could like more pressingly be on the question of sovereignty and legitimizing aggression. I think while everyone was distracted with Ukraine, I think um, Beijing like was flying a lot more military planes over Taiwan suddenly and like Taiwan is on high alert now and like some what I'm hoping that we can do as the academic community is to explain to people and like get them to appreciate why this is important yeah. and, like, um, and also you know to get different kinds of like conflict on the agenda make sure that people understand that you can't quite separate uh, the aggression of Beijing from the aggression of um, of the Kremlin, and also that it's not just about you know Europeans protecting other Europeans. There was a question in the chat about the mistreatment of uh, of refugees of color who are coming out of Ukraine, and they were like experiencing racism from all sides. This is a microcosm of like the racist treatment of global crises on an international scale, and unfortunately, these poor guys are experiencing it like very directly. Right, Jay. Um, uh -huh. I'll echo what Jamina said, but I, I want to give attention to how this issue really uh, centers on the most fundamental debates of uh, international relations, basically. Uh, uh, it, I won't answer the question now, but it's something that should uh, uh, that people should continue discussing uh, because this issue directly addresses, uh, directly uh, focuses on uh, the very sovereign world order that we have. Uh, because uh, because most of inter international politics, is in, like, apart from the EU, basically, is still heavily reliant on state centrism, of principles, uh, a commitment-based international legal order. Because there's no punitive, there's there are no actual teeth in international politics. It's a, it is a series of rules and norms that are governed only through commitments. Um, so that is why, the, 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 if you think about that, that is, uh, that's the, I think, the, the focus I want to give, because how this plays out may change all of that. It may create an, a new, an entirely new uh, regime. 
that should be because whether we like it or not uh, this isn't the first time and this won't be the last time unfortunately that a country a sovereign country will be invaded um however if uh but but this is an ongoing debate about legitimizing normalizing um so uh, unitary unilateral wars of aggression as a viable way of changing how we understand sovereignty because remember sovereignty has two key tenets eh? non-interference and self-determination so if we continue if we allow this if the international community uh, is unable to resolve this issue over the next six months we may see a paradigm shift in this commitment-based legal order and it's something that we cannot answer now but it's something that I think a lot of people look at when they look at this issue Excellent. Um, thank you so much. And I'm uh, being mindful of time. I suppose this is uh, this is the time for us to close. I'd like to thank um, both Jarek and Jamina for for sharing with us their their, their thoughts on this. Um, and I'd like to also send out my gratitude to everyone here with us. Uh, I I know some of you are students of subjects that have asked you to be here, but. I, I hope you found it entertaining and, and uh, educational at the same time. But for now, uh, thank you so much uh, on behalf of um, Jamina, Jarek, and myself. Uh, thank you for joining the European Studies Program's uh, conversation on the on the Ukraine invasion. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Uh, see you next time. On behalf of the EuroSpeak podcast team, thank you once again for listening. If you're interested in donating to UN agencies or international NGOs helping with the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, you can find links on the episode description. Thank you so much for listening to the Eurospeak podcast. If you like what you heard, why not leave us a five-star review? And for more episodes, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you want to get in touch with us, our email address is contact.eurospeak at gmail.com. <laughs>